So last week, if you were here, we discussed how it is that words hold power. That words are powerful. What we say to each other, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to talk a little bit about that again tonight, uh, the, the poetic of speaking creation into being. And we talked about uh, the significance of speaking truth to power. And so tonight I just want to del- dig a little bit more into that, um, to dig a little bit more into the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, which is the, the beginning of the Bible, if you've read it, um, and also kind of a couple of complementary verses of Scripture that kind of build on that creation story uh, throughout Scripture. And so to begin, I'm just going to read three short Scripture verses, uh, all from the Message Translation. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 says this, Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. God spoke, light, and light appeared. God saw that light was good and separated light from dark. So that's Genesis 1, 2 to 4. John 1, 3 to 5 says this, Everything was created through him. Nothing, not one thing, came into being without him. What came into existence was life, and the life was light to live by. The life light blazed out of the darkness, and the darkness couldn't put it out. And the final verse, 1 John 1, 5, This, in essence, is the message we heard from Christ and are passing on to you. God is light, pure light. There's not a trace of darkness in him. So three scripture verses, essentially about one thing, which is light and God's relationship with it. And so the first passage comes from the creation story. And I don't know if you know much about the history, I guess, of writing various aspects of what we call the Bible, but uh, current scholarly thinking basically places the writing of the creation story um, during uh, what was known as the exile of the Israelites in Babylon. And I kind of find this fascinating because this was not a great time for the Israelites. During this time, what we know is Genesis chapter 1, which is being written at this time, the Israelites are exiled in a foreign land. Basically, their their country has been pillaged and ransacked by the Babylonians. Uh, Their temple has been ruined. Their their cities have been burnt to the ground. And and they're really, really far from home. And yet, kind of amidst this despair and amidst this darkness and amidst this complete sense of unknown, uh, of being uprooted from their homeland, this creation story is created that's very poetic, that's quite hopeful, Um, And it's kind of wondrous. And and it's a story uh, that sits in uh, kind of stark contrast or juxtaposition to what was the Babylonian creation story of the time. Um, And so the Israelites' captors uh, had a creation story too. And their story was actually written before the Israelites' creation story. And it also begins with water and formlessness. Um, But that's kind of pretty much where the similarities end. I'll actually post a link on Slack for those who are, who are interested in reading the Babylonian creation story from that time. But basically it involves, it's, it's quite an epic. It involves warring gods, uh, monsters, betrayal, uh, murder. There's kind of changing uh, dynasties of gods. And it kind of uh, concludes with the final victor whose name was Marduk, uh, who was the son of the god of water and knowledge. Uh, he... he um, goes to war with uh, Tiamat, who is essentially the mother god or, and representative of the ocean. 
uh, and he rips her in, corpse in half and out of her corpse he creates the earth and the sky. Uh, and then Marduk uh, battles uh, Tiamat's husband, Kingus, and he uh, destroys Kingus and he uses the blood of Kingus to create humankind, uh, not for any other purpose than to be slaves to the gods. So this is the Babylonian creation story that the Israelites would have known and have heard at the time. It's about war, it's about violence, it's about death, it's about mayhem, it's about slavery. But in contrast, the Israelites' creation story, the, the first word that the God of the exiles speaks to the void <laughs> is not a word of vengeance, it's not a word of violence, it's not a word of judgment, it's not a word of retribution, it's light. Light. It's a command, a creative act that's basically speaking to the darkness and calling light out from it. And so the Israelite creation story in the, in the context of the Babylonian story is almost like uh, an underground kind of political manifesto. I can kind of imagine it being shared among the Israelites as, you know, this is where we came from. You know, don't believe what you hear. And so when faced with a formless void, uh, when faced with darkness and despair, what we read out of Genesis 1 is not war, is not bloodshed. We read of a God who delights in creating light. Bright, radiant, warm, life-giving, rejuvenating, darkness-dispelling light. And this light, we read, is essentially a reflection and an extension of God. And so whereas the Babylonian creation story embodies bodies fear and, and kind of positions humankind as essentially subservient to and slaves to the gods, uh, the creation story of the exiles really embodies light and hope and, and uh, essentially positions humankind as children of and partners with God in, in caring for and, and stewarding creation. So kind of putting that aside for a moment to the science of creation. Um, could have an interesting discussion tonight. But, um, and so scientists refer to light as both obvious and mysterious. And historically, whenever scientists essentially have think they've got light sorted and figured out, it has seemed that light has kind of beautifully surprised them. And so through the ages, uh, many differing and many well-respected uh, scientists have had many opposing and differing kind of views and theories about light, whether that's from Plato to Pythagoras to, to Maxwell to Newton uh, to Einstein and kind of many in between. But uh, some of the things we know about light is that light travels really, really fast, yeah? It's um, approximately 300,000 kilometres per second and slower depending on what it's travelling through. Um, unlike sound, light can travel through a vacuum, which is actually really, really important. Uh, for life on Earth, because otherwise sunlight wouldn't actually make it to us. Um, and we know that in order for life to exist on Earth, in order for plants to grow and for um, optimum nutrition and, and kind of min mineral content to be maintained in plants, they need light from the sun to, to shine on them. And so essentially light is this kind of primary essence which governs and allows for all life on this planet. Scientifically, we also know that darkness is essentially the absence of light. Unless you want to get into dark matter, but that's theoretical and we won't go there tonight. But um, unless you want to in your conversation. So, and, and theologically, as Christians, we also believe this to be true, that, 
that darkness is the absence of light. We, we, we read that God is light. God is pure light. We read that God is love, pure love. And yet, I guess our day-to-day reality, or metaphorically speaking, we kind of face darkness in and around our lives every day. Darkness in the form of despair and depression and oppression and hopelessness and violence. We live in a world in which there's kind of this, this wrestle between what we would call darkness and light, between uh, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. We experience racism and we experience gender inequality and class inequality and slavery and domestic violence and abuse and oppressive regimes and divisive politics that kind of pits us against them. Uh, we, we live in a world where some people are more equal and have more rights and seemingly more value than others. You know, this is kind of our lived reality. And what we also witness and experience is that uh, not only is the church not immune to this battle, um, the church is kind of living and outworking it, sometimes not in very good ways. And what happens is when the church as an institution kind of seeks to um, hold on to and control and kind of court, I guess, the kingdom of man, then increasingly darkness seems to prevail. But in contrast, when we confront darkness, when we kind of shine a light in the midst of it, when we speak truth to power like we talked about last week, uh, we increasingly usher in the kingdom of God. And we're reminded of what the exiles described and what John proclaims, that God is light, God is love. Darkness has not and will not overcome it. Light wins, love wins. And and I think that if we embrace this thought of light and love winning, we can kind of begin to understand that often as overwhelming, as frightening, as big and um, seemingly irrepressible that darkness appears, it actually doesn't take much light to have an impact. You know, a tea light candle, there was a tea light candle being lit earlier in a dark room makes a really big difference. Uh, a solitary tank, if you're old enough to remember this kind of history, solar, solitary person standing in front of a tank in a public square can make a massive impact. Uh, uh, a woman of colour standing in passive resistance before armed guards holding tear gas guns, uh, a man on a cross, uh, a person kneeling in prayer can have a, a significant impact amidst darkness. But I think too, the challenge in that is that a solitary tea light candle is kind of easily noticed. It's easily identified, it's easily kind of isolated, it's, it's potentially easily snuffed out. But if you add a few more lights to that light, if you add even more and more and more, then not only does the darkness dissipate, but the light is kind of far harder to extinguish. Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew uh, likens shining a light to good deeds. And so I kind of think that light is less about what we say and really more about what we do. It's kind of a way of living. And when light is, I guess, shone in the darkness, when... Uh, freedom is one in the face of oppression, it, it's often because someone has really kind of caught a glimpse of the way things can be and should be. It's, it's because someone has kind of caught a glimpse of uh, whether they understand it in these terms or not, a glimpse of the kingdom of God. And they begin to live uh, as if it was already here and already true. And as Christians, we're essentially called to live as light in the darkness. We're called to live 
the future possibilities in the here and now. And so one of the questions that I was kind of considering this week for myself, and we'll talk about it in just a moment, is um, what is the darkness that you are called to shine light and love in? What is the future possibility that you might usher in kind of in the here and now? And so if as Christians we believe that Jesus is light and love and hope, then it is this light and love and hope by kind of which we see, by which we know, by which we commune together as a community, um, by which we are strengthened. And so I guess my kind of concluding thought and prayer is that um, as with scientists on the subject of light, uh, my prayer is really that we would encounter uh, both the obvious and the mysterious, both the obvious and the mysterious ways of Jesus, both the obvious and the mysterious ways of community. Um, we are often so keen to hold on to certainty. We talk a lot about that here um, over the last year and a half. But I think mystery is something potentially that we seem to be losing sight of as we become increasingly polarised around various conversations and topics. But my prayer is that we would increasingly encounter the, the mysterious ways of Jesus, that we would increasingly be surprised by light, that we would increasingly be surprised by love. That's my prayer. Amen. Amen.